All right, well, Redeemer, let me pray for God's help. God, thank you for your goodness and, uh, yeah, struck by those words in Isaiah that you saved to the uttermost. Now, you don't just save, but to the uttermost. And uh, pray you'd give us a glimpse today of what, what that means. So be with me, help me, rejoice in you, and do likewise for all of us. Amen. Isaiah 60, just shocking stuff in here. Let me, <clears throat> let me just be clear up front on what the good news of Jesus Christ is. Hopefully, we try to be clear on that all the time, but um, I just want to lead with this. And I'm just going to read some scriptures to you. This is in John 2. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what he does. We have sin. We can't take it away. He does that. He is the lamb sacrificed for us. Acts puts it this way. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That's it. Just cast yourself upon him. Ephesians says this. In him, in Jesus, we have redemption, right? Salvation to the uttermost through his blood, his shed blood, right? He's the lamb that was slain. We have forgiveness of our trespasses. So there's this forgiveness aspect that the sins that we carry are put on him and we are forgiven. There's this passing over. But there's also this move toward us to bless and to transform. John 1 puts it this way. To all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. So there's a transformation that occurs. And our position our relationship to God, we're not just forgiven and left alone, right? We're forgiven and brought in. In John 10, Jesus says this, I give them, those who believe, eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. There's the roots of invincible joy, that we have eternal life, sons of God, and no one who can snatch from the hand of Christ. He holds them. Romans 8, describing this future longing, and this is where we're going here in Isaiah's, this longing for this new heavens and new earth where we will be saved to the uttermost. Romans 8 says this, right now we groan inwardly. Do you, ever, do you groan during worship? Like, are you just there or are you fighting? Do you ever feel like, oh, come on, God, I want to, I'm saying these grand things and I'm thinking about this afternoon and other things and shame and like, there's a groaning. He says, we groan and we wait eagerly for our adoption as, as sons, the, the completion, and he calls it the redemption of our bodies, right? Where this tent, we will shed this tent. Oh, and Paul says in Corinthians, we will shed this tent, Right? Not that we should be unclothed, but that we should be further clothed. These glorious bodies. For the creation even, the whole earth, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Now we've talked about this as we've gone through Isaiah, and it's coming up again here in, in Isaiah 60. We're going to see this. That you are going to be given glory. Right? We talk about the glory of God. But also, we are being given glory. The whole earth is groaning, waiting for the revealing of our glory. 
And therefore, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory, you would expect it to say, God. Listen, right? The earth is subjected to futility. There's war and famine and disease and earthquakes and all that. It wants to be set free, and so it will be set free from its bondage to corruption, and it will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. (laughs) That's too much. Does this sound like a fairy tale? I know it does, but it's not. I'll tell you a fairy tale. To march through the streets demanding justice while denying God. That doesn't make any sense. That's a fairy tale. Humanity is well-versed in fairy tales. This is not a fairy tale. This is the truest thing, the truest longing of our hearts. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. It's a familiar quote for you guys. If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And so here we're just tracing out the longings. There is a God. And that's why there is a good. And you're right, there is injustice, and it is systemic, and it's worse than you think. It's in the system. And so what do we need? We need a new heavens and a new earth, the redemption of our bodies. The whole system must be torn down. And so what we have here in Isaiah 60, and I'm not going to go verse through verses a lot here. I'm going to make some highlights. But we're talking about the new heavens and the new earth, right? Revelation 5 describes the new heavens and new earth this way. This is a little bit of it. I'm sorry, Revelation 21. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the lamb. Sounds very familiar to what we just read here, right? If you look at verse 19. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Isaiah is being given a vision. He's looking to a future state where there will be no more mourning, tears, and death. It's a new heavens and new earth. But to get there, something has to happen pretty fiercely. Martin Luther King has a quote. Now listen, I'm going to pick on him a little bit. It's a great man's done great things, all right? But we don't look to him for our theology. He says this, The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Is that true? I think from his perspective as an American in American history, he was in this place where he could see some progress of justice, particularly for African Americans. And you can say, wow, there's this moral arc. It's bending toward justice. But the problem is that he's speaking from a snapshot of humanity. And the reality is there's nothing, there's nothing here to stop that from reversing. The moral arc of the universe isn't a long, slow bend toward justice. It doesn't come. This righteousness, the promised land that we're looking for, that he speaks of seeing, You know how it comes? It's not a long, slow arc. It comes like a thief in the night, or as Paul says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. That's how it happens. Peter puts it this way. 
The day of the Lord will come like a thief, not in a long arc. We're not building slowly this system of justice that will then usher in the, the, the coming of the Lord. He will come when he determines to come, and it will be in a moment. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with the roar. Why? Because the whole system must be burnt to the ground. It will, heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And then what? We see a new heavenly Jerusalem. It comes quickly. So, what are some of the features of this new heavens and new earth? Listen to this. Verse 20. Your days of mourning shall be ended. This is the end of verse 20. Your days of mourning shall be ended. So there's this idea here where there is joy to be found in trial. There is joy even in the Lord to be found in tremendous loss. But the days of mourning will be over. Revelation puts it this way. He will wipe away every tear. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. Why? Because the former things have passed away. Revelation says this. Um, Revelation 21 again says, the sea was no more. Now, if you're like me, you like going to the beach. And that sounds like a night. Well, why, why no sea? Why no ocean? And it's because in the Bible, the sea represents the world of chaos. Right? It's the demonic realm. It's where Leviathan is. It's chaos. Remember at the beginning of the book of Genesis, the, the, the heavens and the earth weren't formed, and it was all disorder. And then the spirit came and hovered over the over the sea and brought order out of that. The sea represents chaos. Like, do you ever, do you just feel like this world is chaos? I listen to news and podcasts from all over the place. I listen to liberals, libertarians, anarchists, communists, and you know what I, my, one of my main takeaways is? This is chaos. How are these people ever going to agree? There is so much space between them where they stand and what they believe is true and so much missing Nuance, even in our church, this happens. And it's chaotic and tragic. And it's overwhelming. And sometimes I, you know, I do a podcast, like, I want to teach on there. Yeah, that's going to fix it. Gosh, when we're going to a place where the sea is no more, like chaos is gone. Can you imagine that? All there is is unison. Harmony? What does that even feel like? So when, when the book of Hebrews is talking about Jesus saving to the uttermost, that's what he's talking about. Not just, oh, I'm saved. What does that mean? I, I'm not going to hell. Oh, okay. That's it. There's so much more. There's, there's going to be a rippling effect of the glory of God through every piece of the fabric of creation. Unison. Now, there's a strong theme here. So I've hinted at some um, features of the new heavens and new earth, but in here there's a strong theme of your glory. 
So why do I keep talking about this? Because God keeps talking about it. Watch this. When I first started reading Isaiah, I thought he was talking about Jesus. I thought he was talking to Jesus. And often when we study the Bible, we do see how all, all these passages do ultimately find their fulfillment in Jesus. So we can go there. But it's very clear as we go through this, he's literally talking to his people. Here's what he says. Arise, you, and shine. Rise and shine. For your light has come. Now, how do I know he's talking to his people instead of to Jesus? Because he's saying that he had rebuked us in his wrath, and now he's having mercy. This is, we, we are, watch, it'll become more plain as we go through here. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Verse 2, I'm just highlighting some stuff here. The Lord will arise upon you, and His glory will be seen upon you. Nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see they, all the nations gather, they come to you. Then you shall see and you will be radiant. Listen to this next verse. Your heart will thrill and exalt. Exalt means to rejoice or praise. Right? You will be radiant and your heart will thrill and exalt. This is to be saved to the uttermost. Don't you want your heart to thrill? Because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. These are the nations coming. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you, foreigners shall build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you. Every knee will bow to you. Now, some of you are very, are you uncomfortable with this? Like, Right? When every knee will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. That's right. And we are in Him. We are seated with Him. Where is He seated? On a throne. I mean, it just says it. We get uncomfortable. Do you remember at the end of the Lord of the Rings when the hobbits went to bow to King Aragorn? And he says, no, no, no. You bow to no one. And then all the kings bow to the little hobbits. You to get used to that. So again, glory of God and our glory, how does this relate? Verse 8 and 9. <laughs> this is poetry. Man, who are those that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows, right, to see? It's the nations coming. The coastlands shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish first, 
to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them, for the name of the Lord your God, and for the Holy One of Israel. So he's receiving praise. The nations are hoping for him. And he is the Holy One of Israel. But why are they hoping in him? Why are they praising him? Because he has made you beautiful. That is his praise. When they bow to you, they are bowing to God. God's people, what God has done. Our glory and God's glory have been fused in Christ. We need to wake up to this. Why have I never been told that? Nations will bow to me. Sounds wrong. But I'm going to believe God or my intuitions. Let's listen to this verse. Verse 15b, the last half of 15. This is what God's going to do to you. I will make you majestic forever. A joy from age to age. This is a Hebrew parallelism. What it means is there's two lines that say the same thing in different ways. I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. That means your joy is your majesty. It doesn't say I'll make you joyful forever. That's true too. We saw in Isaiah 56 or so where he says, I will take them to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. But here he says, I'll make you a joy. You are, you're going to tell your kids that you're my joy. You're a joy. You. He's going to do that to you. How? By making you majestic. A joy from age to age. That's poetry. I want to be that. I want to be a joy from age to age. Oh, so let's break those down. Let's talk about joy and age to age or fullness forever. We get hints of joy here. Birth, right? Birth. Oh, man. Babies. Weddings. Great meal, a dance. Have you ever really danced? Passion. Right? As Augustine says, show me a man in love, he knows what I mean. Laughter. Like really laughing. So again, there is there is joy to be found in trials here. Consider it joy when you encounter various trials, right? But that's the present age. There's an age to come, from age to age even. We get hints of joy here, but we don't fully appreciate. I was telling our sound guy this morning that we live attenuated lives. You know what that means? I kind of had a sense, so I look it up. Attenuation. (laughs) Okay. The reduction of the force effect or value of something to attenuate to reduce the force effect or value of something so here's 
When I say we live attenuated lives, it means this. We are surrounded by glory, but we in our sin and in this flesh live with a reduced sense of the force or value of it. We were in our group this past week practicing, you know, talking about different parts of the creation and how they show the glory of God. And you can talk about mountains. You can talk about rivers and kids and anything. I'll preach a fork next week. But see, we had to stop and do it. Okay, that was interesting. And then we go back to our attenuated lives. But we're surrounded by glory. One of the guys goes, you know, in the Bible, like, when men see angels, they, they fall down and, and bow. And I said, we should do that when we see one another. You're stunning. You're stunning. Should, we should be shocked. Like every one of you is stunning. How are we ever bored? That is proof of an attenuated life. Every single one of you is a stunner. Should never stop examining and asking questions and delving and wanting to know your hopes and fears and stories. And, and then we're like, okay, you know, we can't sustain it. You know why? This body, this whole system needs to be torn down. Gosh. We groan and eagerly wait for the redemption of our bodies and live unattenuated lives. <laughs> Listen to this. This is Annie Dillard describing what she's grasping at what it might look like to live an unattenuated life. She says it's like this. It's like standing under a waterfall. You leave the sleeping shore Right to go toward the waterfall. Deliberately, you shed your dusty clothes. You pick your barefoot way over the high, slippery rocks. Hold your breath. Choose your footing and step into the waterfall. And the hard water pelts your skull, bangs and bits on your shoulders and arms. The strong water dashes down beside you, and you feel it along your calves and thighs, rising roughly back up. Up to the roiling surface full of bubbles that slide up your skin and break on you at full speed. Can you breathe here? Here, where the force is the greatest and only the strength of your neck holds the river out of your face? Yes, you could learn to live like this. Oh, what a racket in your ears. What a scattershot pummeling. It is time pounding at you. Right? So are you aware of that? Like, time. It is time pounding at you. Time. Knowing you are alive is watching on every side your generation's short time falling away as fast as rivers drop through air and feeling it hit. See, so he's a poet. This is what poets are for, to awaken. Now we just, oh, just walking through time. And we are literally on a streak toward death and snubbing one another and taking each other lightly and getting bored with one another and gossiping and bickering. You know what? That will all, those are the former things. They will pass. 
it will be an alien existence. I, I'm trying to grasp at this, right? It's not like, like this, but a little better. We will be, it'll be stunning. Our hearts will thrill. I was talking with one of our members today, again, about this idea of being so in tune with God. Like, like do you think the Father is telling the son what to do, and the son's like, okay, that's what I'll do, or do they dance? They're not unison, right? But we are living disunity, right? But we will be in that. We will be in the dance with them. This is Paul in Romans describing our current existence. This is the groaning. Oh, I find it to be a law, which means it's inevitable. That when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Well, he's describing the life of the Christian who has the spirit within him, delights in God, sees the glory of Christ, and yet walks around with this body of flesh. Oh, that's groaning. So I find it to be a law. It's inevitable. Here. That when I want to do right, because I like that in my spirit, evil lies close at hand. How close? Right here. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, the who I am, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Oh, that's, that's our lives. And what does that lead him to do? Long for home. He groaning for the redemption of his body. Listen to this. Wretched man that I am. He's talking as a Christian. Why? Because it's, it's finished in the sense that we've been purchased, we've been forgiven, we've been given the Spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance, but, the, but it's coming. The former things still have to pass, and that's this, too. It's got to go. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we will enter into that fullness. How long? Forever. Let's grasp at that. Here we get our glimpses, right? They come to an end. There's a song by this really hot current band called Poison. A band's so old, some of you young people are like, I don't even know what that is. 80s hair metal. Every rose has its thorn. There's a song. Every rose has its thorn. Every night has its dawn. Every cowboy sings a sad, sad song. Like, and that song reads, reads true because it is true. Even the joys here and the glimpses. Every rose has its thorn. Listen to this. Birth, right? What a joy. It's a thorn there. What is it? Every birth is a prophecy of death. Every birth has its death. Here. It's going to come to an end. Every night has its dawn. It's, it's, 
See, the, in, the, in this song, the night is the good thing. He's th- thinking about a festivity, something, a party, or a, maybe a romantic encounter. It's going great, but you know what? It will come to an end. Every night has its dawn. We can't sustain. I was, remember Easter? Remember how much fun we had with the music and everything? Like, why don't we just do that all the time? Can't sustain it. This is why God gives us occasions to glimpse, but then in this flesh, we just can't sustain it. Like, we celebrate birthdays. Why? You, why do we sell, pick a day and celebrate that person? Like I said, we should be constantly celebrating one another all the time, every day, daily, on a daily basis, rejoicing in one another as God's image bearers. But we can't sustain. Every night has its dawn. This kind of thinking should make us want to go home. That's my point. But we are being made partakers of the divine nature where we will be able to sustain perpetually. That's God, right? God is a joy from age to age. And He's making us like Him. He doesn't get weary and go, oh, man. He's constantly aware of glory. In its fullness, forever. And He goes, you, come here. I'm going to put you into that. Every cowboy sings a sad, sad song. Cross out cowboy and put person. I don't care how charismatic or good with people or positive you are. There's a sad song in there. Shel Silverstein puts it this way. Underneath my outside face, there's a face that none can see. A little less smiley, a little less sure, but a whole lot more like me. It won't be like that. He will make us joyful in his house of prayer. Remember Ephesians 2 says this, God saved us. Why? So that in the coming ages, here's his to-do list, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. In the coming ages, right? So God's like, okay, I'm going to make you joyful. I'm going to make you a joy. I'm going to show you riches of immeasurable kindness. Okay, how much time do we need? Ages. It won't run out. Here's the other thing. Jonathan Edwards teaches about this idea of not just will we be joyful forever, but it will be ever increasing. Why? Because, okay, so here's your joy. Now God is going to show you riches of his kindness that you hadn't seen before. Do you get less joyful, more joyful, or do you stay the same? I think you get more joyful. And then he does it again and again. Throughout all the ages, he's constantly showing you the immeasurable riches of his kindness. And do you just attenuate and get used to it? Or do you continually grow as he continues to show you the fullness of his wonder? Here's Edwards. How soon do earthly lovers come to an end of their discoveries of each other's beauty. Now, here's the thing. It's not because we lack beauty, but it's because we lack the ability to see it, right? Like I said, if we had eyes to see in love and in right, the eyes of God, we would not stop discovering one another's beauties. 
right? My wife's still discovering mine. She's looking for it, is what I mean. It's a, where is it? How soon do earthly lovers come to an end of their discoveries of each other's beauty? How soon they see that all that is to be seen, and that's where I'd, I'd push on him a bit, but and how happy is that love in which there is an eternal progress in all these things, wherein new beauties are continually discovered and more and more loveliness. This is the guy that wrote Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, right? What he's known for? He's a romantic. More and more loveliness, and in which we shall forever increase in beauty ourselves, where we shall be made capable of finding out and giving. <laughs> capable of finding out and giving. And we shall receive more and more endearing expressions of love forever. Our union will become more close and our communication more intimate. Okay, how about some application? But actually, as I was thinking about this, like, okay, Peter gives us application, right? Peter that says the, these things must be dissolved. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what does that have to do with our life? What sort of people ought you to be? Okay. How should we live then? What sort, of people, what sort of people ought we to be? In lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. So number one, he says, live like God. Lives of holiness and godliness. And that's what we're fighting for. There's a lot to that. It includes worship and fellowship and serving and good works and mission and seeking justice and fleeing youthful lust. There's all these things. The point is, like, we, we live like God. And then he says, you're, while you do, as you do that, you're waiting for and hastening, right? So what's the connection here? The way you wait reveals what you are waiting for, right? So you picture a man at a train station, right? He's got his ticket. He's got a, who goes to a train station? Why did I think of that? Well, I'll stick with it. You've seen it in movies. He's got a ticket, suitcase, overcoat, right? He's waiting for the train. You see people living lives of holiness and godliness. What are they waiting for? They're waiting for God. That's who we're waiting for. And hastening. Hastening means to... Come on, let's look it up. I have a sense. It's like to urge, right, to... Quicken. Let's go to the experts. Google. To be quick to do something. But watch this. At the end of our passage here in chapter 60, verse 22, the, the last couple lines says this. I am the Lord, and it, in its time, I will hasten it. So he's given us this vision, right, of the new heavens and new earth, and we will be made a joy from age to age. Man, someone should... Name their kid that. And he says, in its time, when it's time, in the moment of a twinkling, in the twinkling of an eye, like a thief in the night, in his determination, he will hasten it. Peter says, we hasten it. 
Which is it? It's obviously both. How do we hasten the coming of the Lord? So if you're sick of life here and you groan inwardly and you want to be saved to the uttermost and you want to urge God to come, yeah, we, we sing, come, Lord Jesus, come, right? We pray, we ask, but Peter says that by, by imitating God, we're urging him. We're showing him that we mean it. Right? Because otherwise, like, well, why do you want me to come? You, just live, you have other lovers. Doesn't look like you want me to come. So throw down your idols, flee youthful lusts, and hasten me on. Beckon me. It's your application. Well, let's respond to Jesus. Let's uh, lean in here, ask his spirit to come, to press these things into our mind and our hearts. Let me invite the response team up. Um, this is what we're doing. We are longing for him through music. So there's other things here. Um, you know, we've been opening and encouraging and asking people to listen to the Lord for one another and for the church. And if you feel like he's given a revelation for the body today, we ask that you would, re in CR, you can submit that to Glenn here. And if you're in Cedar Falls, we'll submit that to the MC and we'll discern together if that's it's for us today. Um, and we'll take communion, right? So communion with everything I was saying at the beginning, right? Because the, the new heavens and new earth, in our sin, we don't deserve that. In God's mercy, he sent Jesus to be slain and redeem us. And because of Christ's work, we get that inheritance, right? So it's all, it all turns on Christ, right? His blood given for us, right? So we come and we remember, we celebrate that that was the, the uh, kind of pivot of history, right? That slingshots into the new heavens and new earth you will. So Jesus, when he was with his disciples, he showed them the bread and he said, take this and eat in remembrance of me. This is my body broken for you. The bread represents his body broken. And this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's him purchasing our salvation, our redemption, uh, the new heavens and new earth. All that God promises is bought by the blood of Christ. So let's lean into God and wonder. <laughs> God, pray that you would come and Oh, I don't know, what's the word, unattenuate minds and hearts? To, the way the Bible puts it is to soften the hearts because we, we have hardened hearts. But by your spirit, would you soften? Would you open our eyes and ears to your glories? Would you give us a sense of your presence and your power? Fill us with wonder. God, help our hearts to thrill and exalt. Amen.